I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and this is FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Daniel Riley had found a beautiful solution to a known problem, but why wouldn't people buy it? The excitement of starting a business encourages thousands to try their hand at it every year, but it's well known that failure rates are high. Here's Daniel Riley's story. I was working in the UK tech scene for about four years with a couple of different high growth companies, Groupon and Cardlytics being the two most notable. And um, I saw an opportunity in the market to basically improve the way that sales of marketing technology products was done. So I worked during my evenings while I was at my old company, Cardlytics, and uh, started to build like a minimum viable product. And once I had enough to show to other people, I looked for a co-founder. And fortunately, through my network from ESA Business School, I was able to be put into contact with an individual who was like-minded and interested in pursuing uh, the opportunity. How far did you get with that business? We launched in May of 2015 and we ran the business until about April of this year. I had started working on the company as an idea back in 2012 and it took about two or two and a half years to get to the point where I was comfortable enough to start bringing it to market. When we did, we had a a very hard launch. Um, We basically put the product into market, had a couple of large clients, Delivery Hero being the largest one. We made some early transactions and had some people that were interested in using our service. But what we found was that we were offering coordination effectively. We were trying to coordinate buyers and sellers in a more efficient fashion via a marketplace. Just like TripAdvisor connects a buyer of a hotel product with a seller of a hotel product, we were looking to connect buyers and sellers of marketing technology products. And the biggest learning that I had in this experience was just because coordination is useful or in my opinion was needed, doesn't mean that it will be demanded by the market. What point had you got to in terms of, had you hired people? We had a few interns that were working for us. We had some early revenue, as I mentioned. We had a few clients who were using and uh, loving our product and really supporting it. But what we found was when we went to the broader market, outside of the early adopters, we really met with quite a bit of resistance to people engaging with our product. And it could be that we needed to just stay the course a little bit longer, but what everyone on the team, the three co-founders felt, was that there wasn't enough positive response from the market to see a growth potential that was of a venture size, but probably more like the growth potential of a lifestyle business, which isn't something that any of the three of us set out to build. You therefore had to make that difficult decision. What was the catalyst? We had one large client, as I mentioned, that was very engaged with our product, and we had the indications from some other large businesses that they wanted to start using our service. And so in October, we set ourselves a fairly ambitious plan. This was October of 2015, of making a reality out of some of those indications from the market, specifically getting maybe two or three of those prospects that were interested in becoming clients to actually convert. And we set a plan to have that done by January of this year. 
And when January rolled around and those clients were still talking about potentially using our product but actually weren't using our product, the three of us set out to do some market research to see if what we were offering was really as strong of an offering as we thought that it was. And all of us came to different conclusions, but each of those conclusions indicated to us that we were probably not pursuing a venture-backable business and more like a lifestyle business, which was a, an important moment for us where we all decided to push in a different direction. Was this a meeting where you were sitting around a table? One of our co-founders was based in New York. He's originally from Birmingham, but happened to be out there. So we did a lot on Skype or Zoom. So we were kind of all sitting around a table, but it was a virtual table. And we had numerous very late night discussions after our work days, you know, really trying to give each other support, but also feedback. And I was much more convinced because of course I had experienced the pain that I saw in the marketplace firsthand for the previous four years. And my co-founders were not previously in sales-based or marketing-based roles. So maybe they had less strength of conviction that this problem or this pain actually existed. So there was lots of back and forth. That must have been a difficult moment. How did you feel? It was really rough, and I don't think I realized how rough it was until things actually started to close. It was when I started to close the Gmail accounts and wind down the few investments that we had made in, you know, say advertising or on the website. It was when those transactions started to drop off and not come in on a monthly basis that it really set in, and I would say that was around April of this year. And it's as if I didn't feel it while it was happening. And then once it was done and finished, it really kind of set in. And I realized that I was actually quite despondent about the way that it happened. And I felt more than anything else, a bit of guilt because my co-founders trusted the idea that I had and went into this opportunity based on the information that I had provided to them. And of course, you know, they're all adults who make rational decisions and they knew that there was quite a bit of risk getting involved in a startup, but still it's kind of like the mission leader who doesn't succeed and, or, you know, the football player who fails to score the winning goal. It didn't feel very good. I suppose it's a reaction of people around you as well. There may be other entrepreneurs who can understand. There might be friends or family who can't understand. Yeah, I think the funniest thing is going into a situation where you're with your peers, where most of my peers work in banking or consulting or industry, and you explain to them this idea that you're about to chase, and they don't quite follow it, but they're very supportive. And then afterwards, they try to console you, but in a way that is missing the point very often. They give you the same old lines, which are, you know, oh, nine out of 10 businesses fail, and you know, at least you tried and things like that. But I don't think that they really understand the pain associated with this. You know, it's like a painter putting something on canvas and hanging it in front of the world and letting everyone see it. And then people react negatively or don't react at all. And that's a painful thing. And what the three of us did was put our blood, sweat, and tears into a year worth of a business and displayed it to the market and the market gave us a less than flattering response. Was there anything you did do that you look back and go that was really actually helpful? One thing that I wish I would have done during my time at my previous employer I was very careful not to release anything into the public because I was afraid that they would maybe chase me up for my intellectual property because I was under a contract of employment with them. But in reality, there's no chance that a company would really chase me down for some of the ideas or thoughts that I had in my head. So I wish that during you know the last six months of my employment, I would have been doing some more objective testing of my idea and put a beta version or a minimum viable product into the marketplace and gotten some direct feedback to at least help me steer the product build and the way that we went about building the solution. And what you've done now is go into another startup where you're driving the UK part of the business. Can you explain how that came about? 
Sure. So actually, in December of last year, I got into contact with a headhunter who was looking to fill some roles. And I wasn't necessarily sure that I was going to be looking for a role, but I thought, you know, I'll at least hear out what they have to say. And they communicated to me about my current company, Be My Eye, and I like very much the solution, and I like very much the people that I had talked to. So in February, I started to more seriously consider the opportunity and see if it was right for me. And it's been a good experience so far. And you're the UK general manager of Be My Eye. Yeah, so I have a lot of empathy now for founders because I realize how difficult it is to succeed. Our previous team was a pretty excellent group of people and we had a decent idea and yet we failed. So when I see some people who are founders of businesses and they are actually succeeding and raising venture capital and gaining speed and growth, it's very impressive to me. So I try not to push my ideas too hard to the founders because I realize the pain and suffering that they've gone through. But at the same time, I have the feeling of being a founder and the drive. So I do push forward my ideas, but with a little bit more of a reserve fashion because I respect the amount of work that they've done and the success that they've had. The best thing about this opportunity is it's kind of like a consolation prize to myself. I'm not the founder, but I'm sort of the, the responsible party for one country out of five. And it's a very important country. And I do get to build it from scratch. Maybe I don't build the product, but I build the team and I build the processes and I get to feel like the founder of one fifth of the organization, which is a nice plan B for a recently failed entrepreneur who will hopefully get back on the horse in the near future. But yeah, definitely I have a more holistic view than I did before because as a founder, you touch every single aspect of the operations. So whereas before in previous roles, I didn't feel comfortable enough to really talk about, let's say, the product or the design of the interface. Now, having had some basic experience and having done some research, I feel like I can contribute much more in more aspects of the company's operation than just, say, the sales and marketing angle. I think all good entrepreneurs are problem solvers because the only thing that is demanded by the market is something that is a substantially better solution to an existing problem. And I would say that that mindset is great and wanting to build amazing companies is also great, but you need to have passion for the problem that you're solving. If it's something that you think will become a great business idea or a very valuable business, that's not enough. It needs to be something that you actually care about, that you actually find is delivering value that's meaningful in order to keep your passion up every day. So um, yeah, I'm always looking for a solution to a problem, but now I'm trying to be hyper-focused on solutions to problems that I care about. There are probably a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this saying, well, you should have got back on the horse, maybe started another thing, not going back to working for someone else. What do you say to that sort of view? Uh, the first thing I say is that London is an expensive place to live and B-School debt is also expensive. So I went about a year without earning a salary, just you know, some small income from the company, but nothing substantive. And I kind of depleted the mattress. So now I have to build the mattress back up before I'm able to jump into this realm again. But in addition, I have to create an idea. I have to find something that I'm passionate about. And it has to stand up to the test that any good entrepreneur would put, which is, is there a total addressable market that's large enough to make this opportunity that you're passionate about worthwhile to go after? Patricia Green teaches entrepreneurship at Babson College in Massachusetts. I asked her why people were so afraid of failure. Probably because it goes beyond the economic. So fear of failure is not just seen as a failure of the business, it's seen as a personal failure. I couldn't lead this business to success. And that, I think, is something that's very hard for some people to face. 
because it's also about letting other people down. And we actually do even now teach this in many of our entrepreneurship programs, how to think about what failure really means, how to learn from it, and then how to move ahead. So one of the biggest tips is talk about it. Talk about it with your close friends, with your advisors. Talk about it with those who sort of went down with you. Talk about it with other people who've had different kinds of failures. So you can figure out both economically, socially, emotionally, what did this really mean and what are the exact things I can see to do differently next time. In the case of Daniel Riley, one way he's come through this is to work for someone else. Mm -hmm. How easy is it for entrepreneurs to become employees again? Good leaders do know when to lead and when to follow. So talking very directly with the new potential partner about what is my role and where are the areas where maybe I do have some leadership responsibilities, or at least how can I help achieve the vision, again, is really important. But so many times it still comes down to communication, being sure that everybody understands the expectations. I think only defining entrepreneur as starting a business, especially starting a small business, is the smallest possible definition of entrepreneur. So one way to think about it is not thinking about it as an identity, but as a behavior. So absolutely, you can be entrepreneurial in many, many kinds of environments and contexts. I asked Daniel what he's planning for his next move. I have realized that my passion while it definitely lays in technology, technology is just a means to solving problems. It's not the root cause of identifying the problem. So the problems that I'm more keen on these days are like social or political problems. And I would like to start thinking about technological solutions to solve problems associated with allocation of public resources specifically. And I don't know if there are business opportunities in that, but hopefully BMI is such a success that I don't have to worry about solving a strictly large monetary gain problems, and I can focus on larger, more social issues, not so much ones that are uh, economically driven. So what hasn't killed you has actually made you think bigger. Absolutely. I know a lot of people from previous roles that are creating companies that are, say, mattress manufacturers or, you know, an aggregator of cab apps. These are all interesting businesses, and you can certainly be passionate about the idea of running a business. But if the idea fundamentally doesn't interest you, I think you're going to have a hard time keeping that passion up. Well, thanks to Daniel for sharing his story, and we wish him well with his next venture. Next week, we hear from a toy retailer who put ethics ahead of profits and ended up beating the competition. You can catch up on previous episodes of the first two series of FT Startup Stories by going to our special page, ft.com forward slash startup, where you can also find links to FT articles on entrepreneurship and business education. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.